This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we return to the issue of migration. New reports provide insights on the status of security along the U.S.-Mexico border and on the economics of remittances, the money migrants send home from the United States. But first, Lydia Bayoud has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Argentina passed one of the world's most progressive laws regarding self-identification of gender this week. The law allows Argentines to legally identify themselves by whatever gender they wish. It also gives them the freedom to change their physical or legal gender identification without seeking judicial approval or undergoing psychiatric or medical procedures. The new law was approved unanimously by Argentina's Senate on Wednesday. Argentina's Vice President, Amado Boudou, commended the law's passing. Very good to be here on a day in which new rights are being recognized for all Argentines new rights to equalize genders, and the rights to a dignified death. We're very happy to share it with all these people. The country also legalized gay marriage two years ago. Gay rights activists say the new law now puts Argentina well ahead of most European and North American countries in terms of transgender rights. Argentine Vice President Amado Boudou is facing an investigation for charges of embezzlement. The new allegations come as Boudou is caught up in an ongoing investigation for the misuse of public funds. Authorities say they plan to investigate 10 businesses allegedly linked to Boudou, who is a former businessman. Members of Argentina's opposition have demanded that President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner prove she had no knowledge of Boudou's alleged crimes. Boudou says he is innocent of all charges and is being subjected to what he calls a media and judicial conspiracy. If Boudou is charged and convicted of embezzlement, a public prosecutor says he could face six years in jail and a lifetime ban from public office. Mexico's leading conservative newspaper accuses the frontrunner in that country's presidential race of paying millions of dollars for favorable television coverage. The Mexican newspaper Reforma has published receipts for nearly $2.4 million for positive comments from journalists to boost the image of Enrique Peña Nieto when he was governor of the state of Mexico. One prominent broadcast journalist, Joaquin Lopez Doriga, received nearly $680,000 over the span of two years. Peña Nieto says the payments were for sponsorships that aired prior to any journalist's comments and not for favorable press coverage. Peña's party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI, has a long history of corruption in Mexico, including a history of colluding with the country's television networks. Mexican authorities found 49 decapitated and dismembered bodies dumped alongside a highway leading to the border city of Reynosa last Sunday. The words 100% Zeta were scrawled on the stone arch that welcomed visitors to the city. This is one of the most gruesome mass murders in a string of events linked to Mexico's drug wars in recent weeks. Banners placed along the highway and signed by the Zetas proclaimed that the drug cartel had nothing to do with the killings. Authorities are struggling to identify the bodies of 43 men and 6 women, because of the lack of heads and other mutilations. Mexican authorities have said they may be the bodies of migrants trying to reach the United States. Mexican novelist, columnist, and former ambassador Carlos Fuentes passed away this week at the age of 83. 
Fuentes has been one of the most prominent men of letters in the Latin American literary world since the 1960s. His novel, The Old Gringo, became the first book by a Mexican author to garner literary acclaim in the United States. Fuentes received some of the literary world's highest accolades during his prolific career. He published until his last days, including an optimistic essay on the recent presidential elections in France, which appeared recently in the Mexican newspaper Reforma. Always known as a biting critic of conservative politics and dictatorial regimes, Fuentes used his clout in his later years to criticize the Mexican state's inability to deal with its rampant drug violence. Honduran authorities found journalist Alfredo Villatoro dead on Tuesday in the capital city of Tegucigalpa. Villatoro was kidnapped last week while on his way to work. He had reported receiving death threats prior to his abduction. His body was found on a sidewalk with two gunshot wounds to the head. He was dressed in a special operations police uniform with a red handkerchief over his face. Authorities say Villatoro's family had received a ransom demand and that they will continue to investigate his murder. Honduras is widely recognized as one of the most dangerous countries in the world for journalists, in addition to having the world's highest murder rate. The Committee to Protect Journalists says the Honduran government's poor response to attacks against journalists has only worsened the situation there. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. This week, we start with a pre-recorded interview with Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office in Latin America, or WOLA. She's the co-author of a new report looking at border security, migration, and La Frontera. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Thank you. It's good to be here. This study talks about a five-fold increase in border patrol resources and other security measures along the U.S.-Mexico border, but you're critical of this. Why? I think uh, one thing the study sought to, to look at is actually what has that buildup been and what is the impact? And one thing we, we particularly examined are what are the threats that are used to justify such a buildup? And and I think on that, what we found of, of the threats, which we had divided into four, the, the fear of terrorism coming in through the U.S.-Mexico border, the threats of spillover violence, um, the issue of drugs flowing into the United States and other illicit goods, and obviously then migrants, if you would um, consider that a threat, or which is certainly um, used as a threat by by different members. Kim, maybe we can we can work that through mm-hmm. uh, point by point. So migrants, we're at a forty year low for illegal immigration. Uh, first time we're seeing actually migration move backwards toward Mexico mm-hmm. and Central America since the depression in the nineteen thirties. So why is there a need for that? I think that was one of the big conclusions we saw is that migration certainly has dropped to levels not seen since the 1970s. And if you look at effectiveness then of the the border buildup, particularly with the Border Patrol, what we found is you really get to the point now where any more um, Border Patrol agents that you deploy are going to face the issue of diminishing returns. Our kind of calculation said that right now any Border Patrol agent detains about, apprehends about 20 migrants a year. It's maybe one every two weeks. It's pretty low. And, and it leads to the question of, is it really necessary? To these, these calls, um, particularly from border states and border governors, of we need to have more border patrol agents, we need to have more to secure the border, when what you're looking at is in terms of effectiveness, adding more personnel really isn't, I think, going to produce the expected results because the migration levels are certainly dropping. What we did find, though, is what isn't necessarily dropping is drugs. And if you look at the, the flow of drugs crossing the border, they're still at constant levels or may have even increased. So if that's one of the other issues that the Border Patrol should be looking at in the, between the ports of entry. They're still crossing. And so that puts into question, too, of how much is it 
a deterrent for, for drug traffickers, the fact that you have a bigger, bigger presence of security apparatus on the border. Let me work on the other side of that particular criticism. Uh, we see probably the biggest drug war ever going on right now in Mexico, in these border states, the northern Mexican states. Couldn't you argue that those security forces are keeping that war from moving into Arizona, moving into Texas? That was one thing we did look at was spillover violence. And, and I think across the board, what we found is that it really isn't occurring uh, at the levels that it's actually basically non-existent in most of the, the states, probably with the exception of East Texas. And that was one area of the study that we haven't been able to you know, cover. And we, we geographically, we didn't get to look at very much. And that's where, you know, the border states with Tamaulipas and Coahuila and Mexico, where you do see perhaps a little bit more of spillover violence. But across the board, we found, and, and FBI statistics would show that border communities are safer now than they were years, 10 years ago. Violent crime rates are down. So the idea of spillover really isn't necessarily happening. One thing that we did hear on that, too, is the, the drug trafficking organizations themselves want to avoid the level of violence that they would see in Mexico in the United States because it could provoke a closure of the ports of entry. And the ports of entry close and they lose a lot of business because in spite of the drugs that cross between the ports of entry, a good amount, probably the main amount, cross through the ports. And so anytime you close the ports down, they're losing millions of dollars. So it's not to the cartel's advantage to have that spillover violence. They want to keep it in Mexico. They don't want to get the U.S. too engaged in this. They want to keep it in Mexico. They don't want to have the things that would threaten their profits, I think, in the United States. It doesn't say that there aren't you know, cases of violence, but I think overall it's more in their interest. They would prefer to just keep that on the Mexico Mexico side of the border. And and that is certainly an alarming issue. And, and we do look in the study at what does the impact of that security in these border cities have on migrants, particularly migrants that are being deported into, from the United States into border towns, sometimes in the middle of the night, in areas that are pretty unsafe. Well, the Mexican government doesn't have total control of well, some people argue 50% of the country at this particular point. So this is an issue. It, it, it certainly is, and I think it's an issue of one area you looked at, what is the, the humanitarian impact of the, the border security buildup on migrants? What has it meant for migrants that you have such a security presence between you know, increased fencing, increased agents, increased technology, drones, et cetera? And I think one thing we, or a few things we found is, one, migrants are crossing in more remote areas. The, if you look at the, the particularly in Arizona, the statistics, and that's probably the, the state that has the highest number of migrant deaths per year. Deaths last year actually dropped, but if you compare deaths per 100,000 apprehensions, they're actually increasing. And so that would suggest that migrants are being pushed into more and more remote areas of the border, but they're also becoming more and more contact with drug trafficking organizations. And I think that is the area where we've seen particularly given the expansion of organized crime in Mexico, a real kind of fusion in a lot of cases of drug trafficking organizations working with migrant smugglers or migrant smugglers being incorporated into organized criminal structures or being forced, almost in a sense, to work within the network of organized crime to be able to, to smuggle migrants into the United States. So what are the suggestions that come out of your report? What are you recommending? This is a good time to stop and look at what the impact of the buildup has been where could more resources be used or not? I think we said particularly ports of entry are an area that's probably neglected in terms of where a lot of illicit goods flow and and where you don't have the same level of resources as you do for the Border Patrol, for example. Another um, issue that we were concerned about is you look at what is the role of the U.S. military 
on the border, which has traditionally had a more counter-narcotics role, but then we had the deployment of the National Guard in two different um, stages in the past few years to as response to calls, particularly from border states, if we need more presence, who really were just there as a support mechanism to the Border Patrol. So what, you know, what is a role if there should be, and how do you actually transfer a lot of the role of the military to civilian institutions? This is not the traditional role of the U.S. military to be patrolling the border. No, and, and I think they, they, they don't necessarily want to be um, patrolling the border. There was a government accountability office report last year on what's the role of the National Guard and, and the Defense Department had expressed concern of the impact of the deployment, the the effectiveness of it, and I think the fact that there isn't necessarily a border security strategy that would show how clearly their role is or what would be their role as compared to other agencies. So that's one thing we look at. And then on, on the impact of migrants, I think two things we said is, one, we the United States need to be mindful of our deportation practices and particularly practices where it's considered lateral repatriation, where you pick up a migrant that maybe was picked up in San Diego and they deport them through Texas, for example, to kind of separate them from the smugglers that they were working with. But it also means putting them into, as you said, areas of Mexico where the government doesn't have a very strong presence, where you have organized criminal groups waiting to prey on migrants and either extort them, kidnap them, try to incorporate them into their own organization. So I think U.S. practices that are putting migrants more and more at risk. So... Some recommendations, perhaps, for the Obama administration in the report? Yeah, I think on that, particularly on our repatriation practices, I think there's the need to have better guidelines on where is it appropriate to be repatriating migrants. How can you measure that given the different security threats in cities? Right now, they're not repatriating through Ciudad Juarez because of the high levels of violence, but you have migrant shelters that would say, Juarez is actually a better city for migrants to be deported to, surprisingly, because there's already a social network there of migrant shelters, of organizations that could address migrants as compared to a lot of the border towns in the Texas area, so Nuevo Laredo, Reynosa, Matamoros, where there really isn't any presence in a very dangerous city. So how do you have better indicators of where it's appropriate to be deporting migrants. I think the other of resources, um, even looking at the, the deaths of migrants, how can you increase resources for the, the Border Patrol's um, rescue, search and rescue teams? How do you facilitate the work of humanitarian groups that actually try to um, rescue migrants or provide water stations? And I think, again, on the strategy itself, the, the feeling that we don't have a comprehensive border security strategy. There, there's a counter-narcotic strategy for the Southwest border that can, incorporates every U.S. agency involved, but there, something doesn't exist like that for border security. And so the need to really have more coordination, because you have lots of agencies operating and not as much coordination as you would actually think between them. Because La Frontera, the border, is not just one-sided, does the report have some suggestions for the Mexican government, too? We do. And I think um, this study was actually done um, jointly with the Colegio de la Frontera Norte. It's uh, an institution, um, university based in Tijuana that has campuses throughout the border. And I think on the Mexico side, particularly it's looking at the situation of migrants in transit in Mexico. As, as you may know, um, migrants, the, the kidnapping of migrants in transit in Mexico has become a huge problem. It's estimated about 20,000 migrants are kidnapped every year as they travel from particularly Central America to the U.S.-Mexico uh, border. And unfortunately, we've heard about the mass graves that are part of that problem. Many of them are, you know, they've been executed. A lot of people, when they're, tor- they're kidnapped, they're tortured to 
give the family their phone numbers of their family members in the United States to be able to pay ransom. If you can't pay ransom, there's all sorts of consequences, including execution. So I think it's a big problem. And I think what we looked at on that is the involvement of Mexican authorities in these types of abuses. I mean, it's not, you know, all Mexican police or Mexican immigration agents involved, but there is a good number where they do have participation or where they've had a blind eye to the situation. So I think particularly with the government of one, the responsibility to investigate the criminal networks, but two, making sure that you're actually investigating and prosecuting your own agents that are abusing migrants. And that's but something this sort of corruption is nothing new in Mexico, decades-long generational problem. Certainly. But I think that the difference now, and, and what we do put in the report, is the expansion of organized crime in Mexico. I think you've had, one, a traditional kind of corruption in one level or another, political or otherwise, but where you see now organized criminal groups not just involved in drug trafficking, but a series of illicit activities, including kidnapping of migrants, extortion, human trafficking, pirated goods, it certainly leads to a greater involvement, including state agents, in these types of illicit activities. I think municipal and state police have always been implicated in beating up or robbing migrants you know, on their way there, particularly robbing them, extorting them for money, but not where you see them working with kidnapping rings. And I think that has been the change as you've seen the expansion of organized criminal groups in Mexico and particularly the, the setas, which I would say are the main group that have been involved in the kidnapping of migrants. With that, that's all the time we have. Maureen Meyer of the Washington Office on Latin America. Wola, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. We return to the issue of remittances this week. The Inter-American Dialogue, a leading think tank in Washington, D.C., has recently released a study looking at these important payments that flow from migrants in the U.S. to their families. The study's author, Manuel Orozco, joined us recently via Skype to discuss his findings. Although economic recovery has helped uh, immigrants in the United States to continue remitting, the impact of that is minimal considering that um, the growth of remittances exceeded 8%. It's somewhere around 9% at this point vis-a-vis -vis the year before, between 2010-2011, when unemployment of Latino immigrants only dropped by 2% during that same period. And one reason explaining that is that there are a number of uh, factors that are, some of them are externalities um, outside of the the remittance process and others that are inherent to it. But mostly the, the key issue is that there is a number of new dynamics emerging <clears throat> in the international economy and international society that are influencing the way people are sending money. Um, one of them has to do with the growing role of female migrants, particularly uh, skilled uh, female labor, who tend to remit more than any other group in the migrant community. Another factor has to do how immigrants respond to natural disasters. As a natural disaster grows in strength and affects a particular country, 
people respond by sending remittances. So um, can you give us some examples of, of when we've seen this wave of remittances go south because of a disaster? Well, I mean, every country in, for example, Central America and the Caribbean and Mexico goes through at least 10 to 13 natural disasters every year. In total number of days, we're talking about 30 days, more or less, that a country is affected by nature uh, in a significant way. That is, there, there is death, there is physical destruction, and there is disruption of economic activity. Um, that affects certain locations. For example, um, the earthquake in uh, Haiti or the floods in Mexico um, are two kinds of examples. Also, the droughts in Guatemala, um, among other things, illustrate that pattern. We see that uh, immigrants tend to remit particularly to the locations where the disaster occur uh, in larger numbers. So are and they sending money to their families or they're just sending money in general to help with disaster relief? No, for the most part is family to family transfers that are to help basically with some of the damage done to the house, to their property in general. So the increase is minor, but you know, because of the continuity and the density of these disasters, people are basically adding a little bit more. And so there is almost like a 5% increase in remittances as a product of these natural disasters. You, you talked about skilled female labor. What would be some of the jobs that we see these migrants doing um, when they're here in the United States? Well, um, this is an interesting phenomenon that has been emerging for the past five years, or at least that we have noticed in the past five years, and that is that um, female migration not only has increased, but also vis-a-vis -vis men, um, they are coming with uh, tertiary education and with higher skills. Examples of the most typical skill of um, female uh, people with a tertiary education are management, uh, people in managerial positions, for example, people working in marketing and business administration, um, among other sectors. They basically come to fit into the, the global economy that has a substantial demand of um, high-level managers. So when we're talking about these types of remittances, we're really talking about documented labor. We're not talking about undocumented labor. Not necessarily. Um, I mean, the reality is that even um, undocumented migrants come with high skills and tertiary education, and they may end up doing the job that is not what they were trained to do, but still they are doing a high-skilled job. So, I mean, you have, for example, managers of, of some businesses that may not have their papers, but they work for a small company, uh, a small business in, in Annapolis or in, um, in Hialeah, Florida. And basically, they are meeting a, a competitive need uh, for that local economy. So it's a combination of both. It's probably higher um, the percent of people with a legal uh, status among those with tertiary education, but it includes both. I think some of our audience might be surprised to hear that we're talking about having the need to import mid-level management into this country when some people feel like we're 
still slowly coming out of an economic crisis. Uh, but that's the way the global economy is moving. The, the current position of the global economy in what we call the digital industrial revolution is shaped in terms of competitiveness by the ability to have a well-developed, well-efficient uh, management team. It's not production, it's not marketing itself, but it's a management team that knows how to uh, identify the distribution centers, production networks um, into the value chain. And so you increase your demand for foreign labor as you try to find the most efficient people and also to some extent low cost. Although labor cost increasingly is becoming less of an issue in the global economy because we're seeing also a standardization of certain labor costs, particularly in management. So it, it is not surprising. This is the way of the global economy and this is the way of the future, the future of migration. At this point, we are seeing a, almost a, a leveling point or a decline, an increasing decline of migration at a global scale. But in the next few years, you're going to see a new increase of migration and it's going to take um, a different look and it's going to be more skilled related. In, in a political year in the United States, we hear a, a lot about a sluggish recovery. Does this report point to the fact that, that we're already in an economic recovery, or is there a different finding from your economic background in this? Yes, the report shows uh, particularly that the, the sluggish recovery didn't add, didn't connect particularly to the growth in remittances. And it also shows that not only do you have a sluggish recovery, but you also have a strong anti-immigrant um, sentiment that is translated particularly to large mass deportations. We're talking about 300 to 400,000 people deported in the past six years. Over 1 million, 2 million people, excuse me, have been deported throughout since 2003, more or less. So within that context, you it doesn't square the fact that you have growth in remittance transfers but declining migration. And so the question is, well, how that happens? How do you see the correspondence between the two? And this is where the externalities emerge. Other factors have to do with exchange rate situations. Um, as the exchange rate appreciates in developing countries, uh, people see the need to send more money because Sometimes um, commodities become more expensive with changes in the exchange rate. Other things, other factors that influence uh, remittances um, have to do with also a spreading out of international migration within Latin America. There is growing intra-regional migration. Um, so you have a diversity of issues that are outside of simple economics. And so this is the, the critical aspect that what we are seeing is that there is a change in the international context with regards to migration and with regards to remitting, where the economy is only one of several factors. When you're talking about this sort of skilled managerial labor coming from Central America, coming from Mexico to the United States, do we now then have an issue of a brain drain for those countries? That's been a long time concern for those countries, but this is even picking up now more? Uh, no, because, the, I mean, the, the notion of brain drain is an artificial device that 
economists and demographers and sociologists try to use to understand the outflow of skilled labor from one place to another, um, assuming that that outflow represented a deficit in the origin and a surplus in the destination. The, the reality is more complex. The fact that you have outflow of people with uh, skills and education does not necessarily mean that you have brain drain unless your local economy has the capacity to absorb the skilled labor. And in several of these countries, it doesn't have the ability. Well, thank you. Manuel Orozco from the Inter-American Dialogue joining us today to talk about his specialty, remittances. Thank you, Manuel. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucho nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is sponsored by American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. The program is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.